Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Coming up... Dan and I are kind of obsessed with the fact that there's quite a lot of gays in the Vatican. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. And are there any straights, I think? Really? A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. Hi, welcome to Again and On Gay. I'm gay, he's not. I'm James Barr, he's Dan Hudson. Today we are joined by someone we've been wanting to have on the show for a while, actually. Yes. Um, she is a gay evangelical Christian, which is not something you hear every day. She chairs the UK BAM Conversion Therapy Coalition. She set up the Ozan Foundation. Uh, and she really is at the very, very forefront of the UK campaign to abolish conversion therapy. Jane Ozan. Jane discusses the Tories' continuous lack of action on their much-promised conversion therapy ban, and at the time of recording, there is still confusion as to whether it will be included in the King's speech on the 7th of November, 2023. Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. So you're an evangelical Christian, but gay. How did you come to realize like, oh, Jesus is cool with it? Long story, as you could imagine. But Can we have the short Yeah, version? no, we're going to you. And you know, my tagline, if it helps, is unashamedly gay, unashamedly Christian. And it took me 40 years to get to that point. Wow. And about 20 years of conversion practices. And I often talk about three comings out. Uh, the first, which for me was the most difficult because it took the longest time, was coming out as gay. And I did lose, sadly, a lot of my Christian friends at that point because they just couldn't get their head around that but then I came out as Christian to my gay friends well I lost a lot of them at that point because sadly you know let's be honest it's been very painful for so many people who've been rejected by families or friends or even by their own faith groups and then I came out as evangelical to my Christian friends and that was it you know that was beyond the pale but actually increasingly now so many evangelicals are on a journey got longer to go but hey, always what, starts with one. What is um, evangelical, Dan? Dan's really well, good at this stuff. Here's the thing: when you, when you hear evangelical, you just think right homophobic, uh, <laughs> against women's rights, against climate change. So, so it's quite right wing version. Yeah. Well, it can be, and I suppose that's the problem: the brand, if you like, the name can mean all sorts of things, and for so many people, it does mean that. So the anti-abortion, the sort of the headship, the one where the man has to be in charge has been associated with evangelical. But it's not, they're not just like that. For me and for many people, it's the sort of style of worship. It's much more modern music, it's much more relaxed. It often has huge youth attractions. So they have long, a lot of young people who then get into a real difficult spot because so many young people are so open about their sexuality. They find themselves in a church, but they feel they belong with all their mates. They try and come out and then they're suddenly told, hang on, that's sinful, you've got to be celibate for life or you've got to marry somebody of the opposite sex and it's that that causes so much damage. Theresa May is evangelical, is that right? I don't know if I'd call her evangelical, no. Um, she's quite a conservative Anglican right? and uh, she's got a strong faith. But there are evangelicals in the government who've got quite a lot of sway, people like um, William Rees-Mogg and Danny Kruger. And I wouldn't say there's many 
affirming evangelicals in the government I've come across. And that's been why we've had such a struggle trying to get a ban on conversion therapy. Yeah, so it's it's been five years now since Prime Minister Theresa May vowed to ban conversion therapy. Um, what's gone wrong? Oh. <laughs> We've come to the recognition that this government is not going to ban it. It's been broken promise after broken promise. And they've obfuscated obfuscated and delayed (laughs) and put every roadblock in the way. But the core issue really is those from a right-wing evangelical and conservative Christian faith who have wanted to continue to be able to pray the gay away. And many of those are conservatives. And frankly, the Tories don't want to lose their votes. There's also concerns, and I think they're misguided concerns, but it was some confusion around what conversion therapy actually is in relation to trans kids. But I think that's been a lot of making a lot of noise for nothing because conversion therapy and trans kids to me is very clear. This is about people who have a mindset that you can never be gay or you can never be trans and therefore they won't even allow you to explore that. They'll try and do everything in the book to make you straight or to make you cisgendered. That, to me, is where the damage is. If you're having conversations where you you sort of challenge people, where you explore with them, where you give them a safe space where they can have time to get to grips with who they are, that's all good, both in a mental health setting, but also in a religious setting. But if you're saying, no, you can't be this and you have to be this, that leads to conversion practice. Today, I have tasked ministers to bring together police and experts to firstly define the breed of dog behind these attacks with a view to then outlawing it. Rishi Sunak is very quick to jump on a ban for this American XL bully dog, which has attacked, what, two people? Yet the amount of people that have taken their own lives because of conversion therapy, the amount of abuse that this has had on LGBTQ plus people across the country on a continual basis, and the fact that it's still legal, they're fine with all of that. Well, and I think the British public, you know, when I talk to people, are absolutely amazed that it's still legal. And, you know, this summer, many kids will have been sent on Christian camps and, and other camps. It doesn't have to just be Christian. doesn't even actually have to be religious conversion therapy. But that's the primary form in UK today. Mm. But many ca- kids will have been sent on, on Christian camps. And we know this because from the feedback we get from them and from their parents, where if they've come out as gay, they've been told, You've got to be single. You know, this is sinful. You've got to be single and celibate for life. You've got to pray it away. You've got to become straight. You ask me why hasn't the government acted? I think despite all the evidence, despite their own research, they just don't believe that people are still going through it. And yet they've got their own research that shows it is. It's just very hard for people who are in it to talk about it. You really think they don't believe it's happening? Well, that's what I'm being fed back. I've said quite forcefully over the last week, I was speaking at a dinner on Wednesday, that I think when you are aware of harm... When you have the power to do something to address that harm and you choose to do nothing, that for me is a total moral failure. And that's what we're seeing here. We know people, particularly young people, are at risk. They're getting harmed right now. We know of people who've taken their lives and yet the government refuses to act. And that for me, and for many others, we had a letter in July from many religious leaders saying just this, this is a total moral failing of this government and they should hang their head in shame. I, I really can't understand 
why they haven't even looked at what other countries have done. You know, we've got dozens of countries now around the world who've done this very well, very easily. We could just learn from them, heaven mm. forbid. And if they believe that it's not happening, it won't really cause any harm to us just do it, will it? <laughs> well, because they're being lobbied very hard by those who want to continue to pray the gay way. I mean, they've had letters from a lot of evangelical right. leaders telling that we will go to prison if you stop this, you know, which shows that it, that's why we've got to do it, right? These are yeah. people saying we're going to carry on doing it no matter all the evidence. They've also got people telling them, oh, we're going to stop having conversations with our trans children. No, we're not doing any of I think I've made that one clear. This is not about stopping having conversations. It's about having open conversations. So there's a lot of misinformation uh, out there. And the thing that angers me probably more than anything is that despite offering, we've only ever had one short meeting with the minister with survivors of conversion therapy. Every other country has been led by survivors. They've listened to what they've gone through. They've involved them in drafting the legislation to make sure it it meets everybody's needs. But here in the UK, we couldn't even get a foot in the door. And that says to me they just don't want to know. So you quite um, famously resigned from the government's LGBT plus advisory, advisory panel. panel. Yeah. Um, and you said at the time it was a hostile environment for LGBT people and you couldn't believe how ignorant some of these people are, including Liz Truss. What did you mean by that? What was going on? Well, I have to be slightly careful what I say because obviously the meetings we had were confidential sure. but do you know <laughs> resigned. You resigned, I resigned and I called it out well so at the time actually Kemi Badenoch who was the the more junior minister so Liz Truss was the secretary of state and minister for women and equalities Kemi at the time who's who's now secretary of state for women and equalities but at the time she was just minister for equalities and by her own admission she didn't do LGBT she, she really literally doesn't. said that I don't do LGBT she had two various other Tory friends and yet she she had to give a speech in uh, what we call a Westminster Hall debate on conversion therapy. So she set out where the government was coming from. And that speech was so diabolical. And to me, that showed a deep level of ignorance. I'll come back to why. That was the final straw for me. But before that, we'd had meetings with Liz and Kemi. And as I say, the level of ignorance or, or sort of stereotyping. I mean, we had some trans members in our advisory panel, some of whom were openly trans, some of whom... It was known, but you'd have to read their notes. And, and, and yet they were talking to, to the ministers. And you could see the minister going, what? You're trans? You know, I, I you don't fit my image. Yeah. And yet we had some probably a bit more butch lesbian saying, well, we have problems in toilets too now because people think that we're trans and we're not. What I realised, they just didn't understand the lived experience of people across the LGBT spectrum. And these are people with the power to oversee LGBT strategy. You know, Liz Truss had um, inherited one of the best pieces of work the world has ever seen, and I'm, I'm, I'm not over-egging that, we in the UK had done this amazing survey back in 2018. Over 100,000 LGBT people responded, telling the government what their needs were, what their concerns were. And out of that had come, um, and it was, this was under Theresa May, a mm. brilliant action plan of, of stuff that would have really transformed things for the LGBT community. But Liz put that all on hold and said, no, don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. And that, too, to me, signalled that she didn't understand what we needed. She didn't want to listen and uh, was going down her own route. And I was concerned back then that I could see what I feared were returning to what we call the bad old days of Section 28. 
That was when children could not be taught about sexuality in school. And I really feared that that, in a sense, was the direction of travel. And I said that at the time. And now here we are, 2023, when we're waiting for school's guidance on trans children and we're seeing a very similar atmosphere to Section 28. The rollback of rights has come so quickly, it's taken us all by surprise. And it really concerns me because we don't understand the impact on some of our most vulnerable people in our community, um, particularly the trans community. We don't understand the impact of all this horrendous rhetoric and othering and making them out to be, I don't know, predators, you know, I I don't know how much detail we want to go into, but some of the language coming from this government has been despicable. In your opinion, Jane, are they ignorant or do they hate LGBTQ plus people? (laughs) Or are they lazy? I think different people, so I'll I'll name names. So with Liz Truss, (laughs) I I think there was a lot of ignorance or perhaps she's got a lot on her plate. She was juggling a lot. She did listen. And to be fair, she did change her mind. And so she came back saying, yes, we are going to ban conversion therapy. So there was movement there through listening. That's not the same for others who are still in place. For Kemi or Suella or... I didn't name them, but you might have, you know. And and why is that? Is that, again, they've got too much on their plate or... Well, you'd have to ask them, but... um... I come back to Kemi's line, I don't do LGBT. Where does that, you know, that supposedly, I didn't say that to me, but she said that to so a, a friend of mine. You know, some of her comments at the dispatch box, the first time she was at the dispatch box in her role, she took an absolute hammer to uh, Benjamin Cohen from Pink News and, and really tried to blacklist him. She's done the same with Ben Hunt, who's an LGBT uh, yeah. um, reporter, and called him racist. I mean, Ben's... Wow. Black. <laughs> I mean, it's just. Ben's reporting so, is exemplary. It's absolute. It's cutting edge. It's based on facts. He's he's an absolute champion for us. But both Ben and Benjamin had tried to hold Kemi to account. And then she uses the privilege of the dispatch box to, to undermine them. That's not a great start if that's the first speech you give as the women of equalities uh, women <laughs> well, it's and just equalities. it's so depressing that the equalities minister is in my words homophobic uninterested in equality i uh, yes i i'm not using that word just to be uh well care, i feel, I feel like you careful. would if you weren't on um, <laughs> so but i do think it's an unusual choice and it's one that we've flagged constantly given this was the flagship promise to the lgbt community that's been spoken in two kings well queen and the king's speech mm. and for it to have been dropped let alone all the other things they were going to do. It's not been a pretty picture. Tonight, this Christian has lost faith in the government. Fearing the promise of a ban has been abandoned, she's resigned from her post as an advisor to ministers. I was so sad when you quit. Oh, thank you. I don't know, I've always believed that it's important to be there. Well, I agree. And if you look at my own history, I mean, perhaps working with the Church of England and other pretty difficult places, I do absolutely agree with you it's important to be at the table if you possibly can however you do need red lines Mm. and without those you know we don't have principles and my red line was crossed I did not believe that we when I was on the advisory panel that we were going to end up with the protections we needed I tried every which way I could to get Liz and Kemi to listen and when I heard that speech from Kemi I thought this is not going to happen the only way it's going to happen is by me appealing to the Prime Minister who was Boris Johnson at the time 
to make as much song and dance about it as I could. And I was pleased that I wasn't the only one to resign, actually. Um, some of our trans members also resigned with me. And that was enough to cause quite a stir. Um, you might remember that, I don't know, we might come on to this, but Mr. Johnson himself tried to roll back on the conversion therapy ban. Paul Brand from ITV found out about that mm. and shared that with me. And I don't know if you remember, he showed me live on air. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, my goodness. And we created such a stink that within a couple of hours, the prime minister had done a U-turn on a U-turn, not a complete U-turn. He said it wasn't going to cover trans people. But they are conscious about people, you know, kicking up a fuss. Is this real? It's real. But, but this is utterly, utterly ridiculous. This is, this is against every promise they've made. This is what... <laughs> I'm sorry, but the Prime Minister's promised us. Do you feel like you've been strung along for the past strung two years? Strung along? I mean, yeah, does he take us for fools? And to renege on that, how do they expect anybody to trust any of the promises that they've ever made. Do you think a different government, a Labour government perhaps, might be more interested in pushing a ban on conversion therapy? Oh, is not just interested, hope? they're committed. So I've had good chats with Annalise Dodds, who is the Shadow Secretary for Women and Equalities, and indeed the Lib Dems. You've spoken recently, I think, to Leila Moran and others. Yeah. Um, and the SNP, you know, th there's a huge commitment. But importantly, Annalise really understands the importance of this. She's committed to a full ban. Had the government brought through legislation, they would have amended it and frankly would have had support across the whole House because uh, there's Tories who would have amended it to make sure it was a complete ban. They're going to have a lot of work to do when they when they come into power. I think most of us recognise it's when, not if, but, you know, who, who knows? But there is a commitment to do it. And I am now in the place that says I'd much rather them do it properly. I'm going to wait for Labour to do it properly. You have gone through conversion therapy for 20 years, mm. which feels like quite a long amount of time <laughs> to keep sort of giving something a go that clearly isn't working. What made you finally go, yeah, I might knock this on the head, this isn't, this isn't working? <laughs> That's a really good question. Maybe if I could just explain those 20 years just a little sure. bit, because in talking about conversion therapy, I tend to talk about it in three stages. Not everybody goes through all three stages, but they are the ones I went through and typically what most go and for a lot of those 20 years, I suffered in silence. I had this huge secret that I knew I was attracted to women. And yet I knew that my whole faith community and frankly, my own beliefs at that time meant I thought that was really sinful and wrong. And I hated myself. I was desperately depressed because I really wanted to be loved. You know, I couldn't see how that was going to happen. But I didn't feel I could talk to a soul because I thought that they would reject me or put me on the naughty step, you know. And that's I was an adult doing that. I mean, if you're a teenager growing up thinking, God, everybody in my family and my community are, are going to hate me. And you hate yourself because you want to be a good girl you want to, or boy, you want to do the right thing. And normally something happens at that point. Um, either you have a breakdown, which is what happened for me, or somebody outs you, which is often the way you might have told your, one of your siblings or somebody at school. But something happens. 
And uh, you move into stage two, which is when you start getting people praying for you, in my case. You know, people who love you, want the real best for you, who believe there must be a reason why you've got these feelings. Maybe one of your relationships with your parents wasn't quite right. Or maybe, you know, you had an inappropriate relationship. Something must have happened because it's broken and we need to put it back together again. And you've got this huge expectation of people around you praying for you that you're going to get healed. And if you're not getting healed, well, that's your fault because you obviously haven't got enough faith or you're doing something wrong. And again, that terrible pressure. And often when you finally admit this isn't working, you start reaching out for more professional input, which is stage three. You start paying, in my case, thousands of pounds trying to find people who will have exorcisms or deliverance or have got special gifting or Christian counselling it can get quite expensive. Wow. And I thought, to be fair, I thought it worked. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> After all that, you sort of, I just thought I hadn't met the right man. The fact I didn't feel attracted to any was slightly, but that was because I hadn't met anybody. And yet one day I just moved to Oxford and I'd started a course for diplomats and um, sitting in the room, a bit like first day of school, there's this amazing young lady from Romania sitting next to me who was to become a very dear friend. But I realized after a few days, all those years of prayer had not worked. I was falling madly in love with this woman (laughs) and I was right back to square one. And sadly, that triggered for me a second major breakdown because I could see no hope. I tried, frankly, everything there was to try. I'd been around the world getting people to pray for me. I was a very well-known evangelical leader. I've been quite senior in the Church of England. And yeah, as a woman was speaking a lot around the place, I was getting people to pray for me when I was in Latin America or in Africa or whatever. Very gay to be that attention seeking. Oh, I know out there. Well, it was my (laughs) biggest kept secret. And um, yet there was no hope. What was I going to do? God must really hate me. And And I really got to a very dark place. Being honest, I got to that place with thinking, well, this is going to kill me. I've got no desire to keep going. I didn't want to take my life, but when you've got no life left in you, you know, you've got no desire to keep going. And for me, the the big unknown, if I'm really honest, was would the love of a woman bring me happiness or would it be awful? <laughs> you know, would, <laughs> it, would it make me come alive or not? And I soon realized it was the love of a woman I, I craved. I, I found her the most amazing woman, fell in love. And love is just... Extraordinary, isn't it? (laughs) A, you can't keep it a secret. You just beam. But B, it gives you courage. And I couldn't call it wrong. I did think that this wasn't God's plan for me. I don't know. I thought I was walking away from my faith. But I was alive. There was light in my life. And uh, yeah, the big question was, how do I come out? Because this was going to be a bit of a car crash. But I met an amazing guy called uh, Bishop James Jones. He was the former Bishop of Liverpool. He's an evangelical. But his brother's gay and he'd spoken out quite a lot about how the church needed to think again and I reached out to him he was an old mate and we met in the house of lords of all places the <laughs> one place to come out over a cup of tea and I told him and he I think he probably guessed in fact I now realize that most people had guessed and he was extraordinary he was amazingly helpful encouraged me to write my own story and send it to all of my senior friends and you know what I also I mean, I don't know if it's help or not, but I also had some wonderful people I'd met in Oxford who were Christian, but from a very different tradition. They were what we call Anglo-Catholics, who I've been brought up to believe weren't even Christian because they were very different. Yeah. And yet I got to know them. They were so good to me and so full of what I could see of faith. I had to start recognising there might be a different way of looking at this. And so I started to listen to them. And that's the other thing. I had thought I was the only gay evangelical in the world. And now we've got amazing communities online that people can join and perhaps not feel so alone. But at the time, 
it was quite lonely. And and yet, as soon as I made that first step, I was able to connect with others like me and realised there were so many people who'd gone through the same thing. And here so I am. So here we are in the heart of Rome, having had the European LGBT Christian Forum. And we're here to show that God loves everyone and he loves us all just as we are. You've been all around the world by the sounds of it. One of the places that you've been is the Vatican City. <laughs> How was meeting the Pope? Yeah, did well, he read your, You gave him a report, I believe, about conversion therapy. Did he read it? Has he, oh, has he well, been I hope he read it, but things have happened since. So you're right. I met Pope Francis in 2019. Actually, believe it or not, I was invited to meet. I didn't realise this. I was invited to go to Mass at the Vatican, but I didn't realise that's what I was being invited to. So I said, no, thanks. Who wants to get up for a Catholic Mass at half seven in the morning? And the person who'd invited me was like, are you sure? And I said, yeah, no, I can go to church anytime. And then I'd gone off to um, meet, uh, actually, it was the ambassador to, uh, to the Vatican. And she started telling me about this place, Santa Marta. And I stopped her and I said, uh, where's that? And she said, well, that's the Pope's private chapel. And my face fell and she said, don't tell me you've been invited. And I said, well, yes, but I turned it down. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and we all had a bit of a laugh. And obviously I rang my friend immediately and said, could I still come, please? <laughs> and he'd actually, he'd given this place away, but he created away. And I met, as you say, Pope Francis. And then I was invited back to the Vatican two days later, actually, to hear him make a speech uh, in Italian. My Italian's not so great, but I understood he changed the speech and he spoke out against leaders who condemned LGBT people. And actually, the friend who invited me um, is the ambassador, the Argentinian ambassador to Italy and Malta, and he's well known to the Pope. And he, on the back of all our work, had been talking uh, about what we should do, and the suggestion came back from Pope Francis that what we really needed to do was to bring together as many senior religious leaders around the world who wanted to affirm LGBT people and to make a statement, and then he could consider that, because in a sense he wouldn't be on his own. And so we formed something, with the help of the Foreign Office, something called the Global Interfaith Commission on LGBT Lives, and brought together hundreds of senior bishops, archbishops, chief rabbis, Muslim leaders, Buddhists, Hindus, um, to sign a statement that condemned conversion therapy, condemned criminal um, violence and the criminalisation of LGBT people, apologised for the harm that religion had done. And uh, hundreds signed this, and since then actually thousands. And I was meant to give it to Pope Francis last summer, but sadly, as you might, might know, his health's not been very good. His knee was very bad, and it was put on pause. But since then, he's come out with various statements, basically echoing the statement from the, LG, uh, the GIC, which, which has been extraordinary. Got a long way to go, but it shows that change is possible and comes through encounter and through persistence and sheer bloody-mindedness. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on radio, <laughs> but there we go. But, um, yeah, things can happen. We heard on the grapevine that the Pope was going to come out in support unequivocally of LGBT mm -hmm. people, but then he got cold feet. I don't know how true that is. Do you know anything about that? Well, I think that was slightly over-exaggerated, but certainly the Pope is, if you look at what he said and how he said it, he is very in support of LGBT people. He's just got to manage, I'm afraid, the politics of taking a whole global community yeah. on a journey. There was um, a meeting which actually the friend who introduced me to Pope had, had, had overseen and news of that meeting was leaked uh, and didn't therefore happen. And it was because of that mess, if you like, 
that um, I was then introduced to Pope Francis and the Global Interfaith right. Commission was formed. So that, that, that came off the back of that. And it was really unfortunate, actually, because somebody was trying to get ahead of the game. Mm. And sometimes, you know, not everything has to be done in public. You know, you can't negotiate peace with Russia in public. Do you know what I mean? There, there, there's, some things have to be done privately mm. and confidences need to be kept. Dan and I are kind of obsessed with the fact that there's quite a lot of gays in the Vatican. <laughs> yeah, that's an Church. understatement. And are there any straights, I think? Really? <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm slightly... But yeah, I think there probably are. So there's yes. quite a lot of gay... Clergy, is that the right word? Yep, celibate, of course. <laughs> um, can they come out? So they ought to. I believe the truth sets us free. That's why I somehow find the courage to come out. I think, sadly, there are a lot of religious leaders across all faith groups, but particularly in the Anglo-Catholic parts of the church who live in the closet, quite literally. And the stress of that, the splitting of themselves in that, you know, and there's look at that in the Church of England too. It's just not healthy for an individual, but it's not holy either. Mm. I think that we must be true to ourselves and find the courage to be honest and open. But it's shame that keeps people in the closet. And it's that shame which is toxic, both for them, but also for the people learning from them that that's the way they have to be. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if some bishops finally found the courage to come out? Because that would inspire younger people to feel not ashamed of who they are either. And, you know, if I look at the Church of England, we know we've got various gay bishops, none of, only one of whom has come out because he thought he was going to be outed. And if they don't feel they can come out, how do we expect anybody else to be open and yeah. honest? Richard Cole's left in the end. He did. Oh, what amazing inspiration and role model Richard's been. And and is. Uh, and to be fair, we you know, we have many out gay clergy now. And... The church is on a journey, a very slow journey. I hope it will carry on on that journey. But we have to believe that we must celebrate who we are, not hide who we are. God doesn't, in my mind, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Hey, it's yeah. been really good. Thank you for having me on the show. It's just so interesting. And you're even more important than I realised. <laughs> I knew you were pretty important, but it's just like hearing these stories about all these people you've hung out with. And oh. it's, inc it's impressive, actually. I wonder, do you think... I feel like there'll be a film about you, you know, like a Dustin Lance Black special. Well, unashamed book plug here. So I have a book called <laughs> Just Love that does share my story. And I'm just saying that because if there are people listening who want to know how I coped and if it resonates with their own story, Just Love might be for you. I don't want it to be about me, but I do want people to know that there's hope, that there's a way through and that, you know, sometimes some of the hardest battles take the longest time, but we will get there. I know we will get there in the wrong, in, in the end, because it's the right thing to do and justice always wins out. Wonderful. Now, do you know any hot gay priests? <laughs> yeah, Dan plenty. And I, Dan More and importantly, I... do you know any hot lesbians who might cope <laughs> with a Christian? Because that's sure the uh, Thanks for listening, babes. Do the admin and support a gay and a non-gay? Visit gaynongay.com slash donate.